Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Few are better placed to discuss the art of promoting parties than Rob Starr. You might know him as one half of the team behind Mullet Over, a wildly popular event that played a leading role in shifting London's dance music scene out of nightclubs and into temporary spaces. These days Mullet Over is a legit operation, but in its early years Star and Co worked in the spirit of early rave promoters, producing events in weird and wonderful locations, while trying to stay one step ahead of the law. Star's earliest jobs in music were with huge UK festivals like Tribal Gathering and Homelands, and he channeled those experiences into Eastern Electrics, which started out as a large-scale inner-city event and eventually grew into an outdoor multi-day festival. Away from the dance floor, he's also become a respected pub proprietor with three venues across London that aim to draw in grown-up ravers. In a nightlife climate as turbulent as London's, Star has had many ups and downs over the years, so we invited him over to hear his story. So Rob, you started out working for a promoter called Universe, who ran the Club Night Final Frontier and the Tribal Gathering Festival. I wondered if you could start by telling us about the significance of these events and what your role was within Universe. Yeah, I mean, I'd been going to Tribal Gathering since the first event in 93, so I was sort of well aware of Universe when I came to London in 96. And I suppose, yeah, I just wanted to be involved in clubs when I moved to London. And it seemed like a natural sort of fit that I'd been going to their events. And they had a club, they ran Club UK for quite a while, and had quite a seminal night there, which then moved to the complex in Islington. And so I just sought them out really and blagged a job. What was the first tribal gathering like that you went to? Pretty special, yeah. It was down in Warminster. I'll always remember driving down there and there was another pie called Perception that was on that night. Uh, that was in the Midlands and that got cancelled and they sort of turned that into an illegal party but a lot of people couldn't get into Perception and they all ended up coming down to Tribal Gathering in Warminster and so I remember the roads just being gridlocked. We got down there maybe about 10 o'clock at night and you just couldn't, like the cars weren't moving but you could hear the bass like in a distance somewhere and I remember we dumped the car in the end and just walked like, across these fields to get to the party. Yeah, it was it was pretty special. I think there was it was about thirty thousand people there at that one. Was the event kind of doing something that stood it apart from other sort of festival style offerings in the UK at that time? Yes, I mean, Tribal Gathering was the first really, I suppose, multi-genre dance music festival in the UK. People had put on 
big raves, big all night outdoor raves before, but they tended to focus on, I suppose, hardcore or, or sort of what was traditionally known as rave at the time. Whereas Tribal Gathering Port, sort of techno, drum and bass, rave, hardcore, house music, they put everything together in sort of, I suppose, the, the traditional dance music sort of format that you get now. So what was sort of your music preference around that time? At the time, I was sort of just going from being a raver to getting into house music. I'd sort of started off going out in around 1992, went to, I think it was a big Fantasia rave, the first rave I went to, just literally a couple of miles from my house in Castle Donington in Leicester. So uh, we sneaked out and pretended we were going night fishing and, and went to that when we were about 14. So I was really into sort of rave at the time. And then I suppose... As I got a little bit older, I got into the sort of houseier sounds. Uh, I was also getting into a bit of techno at that time as well. So Tribal Gathering was perfect for me because you could sort of have your sort of rave tent and then you could go and listen to a bit of Sasha and then you might go and listen to Cole Cox. So yeah, had everything. So what was your role within Universe? I was basically their boy Friday, I suppose. I used to go in on a Friday morning, work in the office, and I'd just be doing a little bit of paperwork, sorting out itineraries and stuff. And, yeah, I'd work in the office all day on a Friday, and then we'd go down to the club on Friday night and used to look after the DJs, really. I'd be running around making sure people had drinks and making sure people had taxis and were getting away to their hotels and making sure everything was all right with the equipment, uh, just generally helping out, really. I mean, who were some of the like the prominent bookings around that time for you guys? They had everyone in, in the techno world, really. I really remember Richie Horton coming. He actually bought like a little digital camera with him. And it was the first time I'd ever seen like a digital like video recorder. And um, this was like 1996. So, um, yeah, it was pretty special. So he's always been ahead of the curve of oh, technology. Yeah. <laughs> he's always been into his technology. But then Jeff Mills was a really regular performer there. And I think Sven played a few times. Carl Cox was playing down there weather all played down there a lot harvey i remember played in the back room so yeah it's quite big names so obviously you had like a long-standing appreciation of like rave culture and everything sort of connected to it i was sort of interested to know why you wanted to get involved with promotion like what was it about like putting on parties and being a promoter that sort of really appealed to you from an early age i'd put my own parties on from the age of 16 when I did my first party it was just something that appealed to me I mean I had decks at the time but I was never so interested in being a DJ and yeah I remember the first party that we did me and two of our friends at school we put on an end of term sort of school party and we hired a hotel out and we took people there in a convoy of buses and yeah just the feeling when you see everyone really enjoying themselves at midnight and yeah having a great time and I, I, I got the buzz from them really I understand you also work with Homelands and Gatecrasher Summer Sound System, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, Homelands uh, sort of came off the back of Universe when Tribal Gathering stopped. Creamfield sort of stepped into their shoes on, on that weekend, really. And at the time, I think Darren Hughes was at Creamfields and a few people who were associated with that event I got in touch with. And yeah, then I, I went to Ibiza in 99 and worked for Home Ibiza. And that sort of developed into me working for Home, really, and working on the Homelands Festival. I mean, were there any like core kind of aspects of those festivals that like really instilled like good practices in you? Were there any like, you know, elements of that event that you've really like taken away from them? I think a lot of those events, obviously, 
I was quite keenly like interested in the bookings and the way they sort of booked artists that were, were up and coming over the years. I remember one year at Homelands, they booked the streets like just before they came really big. And I think that's always been something I've aspired to do is like identify acts who, who are up and coming, who are going to be um, perhaps the next big thing. But I think in, in terms of, of the format of the festival, I always used to think that those festivals could be better in terms of the production there. And musically, they were always really amazing. You always listen to some great DJs and the musically, they were always spot on, but I just felt they lacked maybe a little bit of production. And I think that's probably the thing that I've tried to take into our events is to try and add that extra level in there. Yeah, I mean, have you always been excited with kind of working or aspiring to work with kind of events of that size? Not always. No, I mean, I used to work full time for home. And when home uh, closed around, I think it must have been 2001, I very much went, I suppose, back to the underground and was like, I don't want to work for a big super club or a big corporation or put on big events. And I suppose that was a similar sort of time when lots of really exciting things were happening in East London and I moved over there and there was lots of little warehouse parties going on and Secret Sundays were just starting to do their events. And I suppose then I really wanted to sort of get back to that sort of more underground ethos, I suppose. Because home was massive, wasn't it? It's like for people who don't know, can you sort of describe the space for them? Yeah, home was basically a seven-storey super club in Leicester Square, um, which when you say <laughs> it's it quite now, funny to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, wow, a super club in Leicester Square. But yeah, it, it had, I think it was four floors of music. Then it had a VIP um, bar at the top. And then there was a, a sort of really high-end restaurant above that and there was a roof terrace it's a pretty amazing space do you think it just may be because it, it wasn't open too long was it maybe a couple of years or? yeah open in 99 i think it closed 2001 i mean do you get the sense that it was maybe at the end of like a, a curve for that style of venue in a way that maybe that style of venue would sort of run its course a little bit definitely i think they really suffered because they couldn't get a 6am license at the location that, that they were at and i think if you want to be a serious dance music club in london it's not great closing your doors at four o'clock especially if you're maybe traveling from a different part of the country to go there and so that didn't help for a start and also it opened its doors when a lot of the really interesting things in the city were shifting out of the west end over to the east and i think those factors combined and the fact that yeah at that time djs were getting paid a lot the rent there must have been hugely significant and i think yeah to put on a club of that sort of scope was 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 a big ass really so in 2004 was when you staged the first mullet over event you'd kind of said at the past that there were aspects of the london scene that you were feeling uh, maybe a bit disillusioned with um i wondered if you could kind of paint a picture of sort of what was going on with london clubbing around that time yeah i mean at that time we still had some some great clubs in london the end was there the cross was there the key the turn mills but for me, they didn't feel that exciting. And when I first moved to London, you had lots of like parties like Lost and you had like Reclaim the Streets doing crazy parties in Trafalgar Square and taking over motorways and the whole sort of like squat party scene, I suppose, was a lot more prevalent then. And yeah, I suppose 
at that time, a lot of people had come to East London and started putting on their own little parties. I remember Hoxton Pimps were doing some great parties where they were taking over sort of car parks and warehouse spaces. And I remember going to one in maybe about 2002, thinking, wow, this is amazing. It basically ran all weekend, so it'd start on the Friday and finish on the Sunday, and you could sort of rock up there at any point in the weekend, pay a fiver to get in and listen to some great DJs. And I thought... Yeah, this is much more what I'm into rather than going to a club and paying £15 and having maybe a bit of an intrusive search to get in and everything else. And that that was the sort of ethos that I was looking for. I mean, would it be fair to say that there's like, you maybe look for an element of danger or something in it, just something a bit more rough around the edges? Yeah, definitely. I suppose at that time, I'd been in London for sort of six or seven years and you're just always searching for something new something different I'd been to pretty much every club in London and yeah after a, a new sort of sound as well as a new sort of space because a lot of the clubs at that time weren't playing perhaps the most forward-thinking music with the exception of Fabric I suppose in the end. Um, so what sort of were the prevalent sort of music styles around that time do you recall? I suppose house was still really quite big then and even though the whole super club thing had died off there was still like not many really amazing musical nights in London I, I didn't think anyway and yeah I suppose club wise Fabric was the only place we really used to go to mm. uh, and it'd be more sort of searching out those smaller parties like Secret Sundays started around that time sometimes we used to go to sort of some of the nights that were on uh, at the AKA like on a Sunday night down there there were some really good nights and I suppose the tech house sort of sound was still quite prominent and a lot of the, the cooler parties were playing that sort of music but so in terms of mullet over what was the sort of feeling among the group about like what you wanted to achieve with the party or like the direction that you wanted to take it in it was quite an interesting dynamic actually the way the party started because Geddes the resident DJ partnered with a guy called Jafar who's, who's been DJing around London for years and another promoter Kelly Love and they'd started the event themselves and I had basically had a warehouse I'd been looking for a warehouse in East London to do parties for a while and I stumbled across this space and so I'd started putting on my own sort of warehouse parties there and they needed a venue for their party there their party had, had lost its venue at the time and we sort of came together like that I was programming two floors of the, this warehouse and they were programming another floor and it worked really well the party was really great and I suppose we all became friends after that and then sort of decided to put the party on as a collective. I mean, what were they, well, I mean, sort of when you met up with them, what were they looking to sort of go towards? Like, what was their sort of aim or ambition, would you say? I mean, certainly for Geddes and Jafar, they were wanting to push their, their DJ careers and, and sort of establish a reputation in London musically for what they were doing. Whereas I was always more about finding interesting spaces and putting interesting parties on. And, and, and Kelly provided the sort of production element to it. She was always like wanting to dress the venue nicely and add, I suppose, the feminine in touch to the party which which always helps so I suppose that combination was worked quite well because you had the musical side covered the venue covered the production covered Tell me through the process of securing and like finding venues because this must have been such a big part of your uh, career in music. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so for example, what was it like around 2004 to like find these spaces in London? Around 2004 you couldn't get a temporary event notice. So for those that don't know, a temporary event notice allows you to put a temporary license on a space for up to 500 people. Because you couldn't do that, essentially you were putting on 
let's not call it an illegal party, but a party without a license, which meant that when you went to a landlord, a venue owner, a warehouse owner, you essentially had to say, I'm putting on a party without a license, which at that time people weren't that keen to do despite the fact that in East London you had a lot more available spaces so you, you sort of you had lots of spaces available to use but then you had to convince whoever had that space that what you were going to do wasn't going to get them in trouble wasn't going to wreck their space wasn't going to cause any issues with the neighbours I mean what would be your bargaining chip in those sorts of situations I mean I guess if these guys have unused spaces it's just like you know bit of cash Mon- money is uh, yeah. <laughs> money is always the bargaining tool yeah yeah. I mean, do you feel like it was a bit easier to get away with events like that sort of 10 years ago? And if so, why do you think that was? I'm not sure whether it was easier to get away with. I mean, we still had our parties closed down by the police. We still had venues sort of closed before we'd even started parties. So I don't know whether it, it was easier in those days, I suppose, you didn't have a choice, so you couldn't apply for a licence, so you didn't have any option, really. So if you wanted to put that party on, then, then that's what you had to do. Did you have any sort of favourites from the early years? Or actually, can you give us like a flavour of the type of venues that you used to use? Um, so the first venue we used was a, a disused toy shop on Whitechapel Road, um, very close to Oldgate East Tube Station. It was basically three floors. So you had three rooms of music and it had a little roof terrace on the top that you could go out to. The toilet facilities, I have to admit, weren't amazing. <laughs> I guess it's give, or t- give and take <laughs> with these things. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall us actually having any portaloos in there i think that there was some toilet facilities but they weren't great and you used to have to go down to get into that particular venue you had to go down an alley you had to bang on the door and you could you could hear the music for that event but you wouldn't have actually known where it was unless you actually knew which door to bang on so they were quite often hidden away obviously they weren't promoted the actual address for the venue never went out till the day of the party so yeah, it was a little bit more clandestine, shall we say. How were you promoting them in those days? Was it mainly word of mouth? Yeah, it was mainly word of mouth. We we did print a few flyers that we just used to give out to our friends. I had a phone number on and used to call the phone number and then you'd get the address from the phone number. But where we were situated in East London, there was a, a, almost a, a ready crew of people to go out partying every weekend. So it didn't take much to get the word round to those people. And there were a few other sort of venues. Doveridge Studios springs to mind in Shoreditch, which was another unlicensed venue at the bottom of Kingsham Road. And there was a little circuit that people used to go around and in East London in those days. So to, to get the word out was fairly easy. Oh, I see. And do any of the early events kind of stick out in your mind as being particularly special? I mean, the first one, obviously pulling off the first party is all, always going to stick in my mind. I suppose one we did at the EQ Warehouse over in Hackney Wick uh, was a Halloween party can't actually remember what year it was but it was probably like 2006 and in those days Hackney Wick seemed a million miles away like when we said oh we're doing a party in Hackney Wick nobody even really knew where it was and just to sort of point out the fact of how far away it was we actually ran buses from Shoreditch over to Hackney Wick because we didn't want people to get lost and it was there was nothing in Hackney Wick at that time and and I think yeah that that was a pretty special party. 
Do you think it's kind of fair to say that the beginnings of Mullet Over kind of coincided with like a new sound sweeping London in the way? Because when I think back to that sort of like middle of that decade, I'm always associating it with like minimal and like deeper house and like more stripped back stuff. Yeah. I mean, was this the stuff that was really like fueling the party and exciting you guys? I mean, you kind of like looking to places like Germany for inspiration. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, when we first started, it was a bit more along the electro sort of sound and it sort of yeah it morphed into that that more minimal sound certainly Geddes who, who does a lot of the bookings that that was the direction he was going in and that was the direction that we wanted the party to go in as well and that was what seemed really exciting at the time Was it at all tough as the kind of years went by and the party grew was it at all hard to like transition from something that was really grassroots really underground kind of really word of mouth to something that was more established with like kind of brand considerations like how was that like transition for you I mean for us it was a fairly natural evolution the parties obviously got bigger and we had to find bigger venues as we found bigger venues we had to think about things like putting good toilets in and making sure the sound system was was really spot on and and I suppose the sort of circle that we were in was getting bigger at that time as well things were becoming more popular in East London more people were moving over and yeah the crowd just sort of naturally swelled I suppose and we didn't really have like a oh let's create a master plan for this it was just like to be honest a lot of the time it was just let's keep finding the venues because that was the most difficult thing at that time was to find venues that we could use and keep them interested and our ethos always was that we didn't want to party in the same place so we're always trying to come up with new spaces and that was the hardest thing. Were you guys among the first to use temporary events notices in London? I like to think we were probably the first people to use the temporary really? events. Like, yeah, I, I certainly don't know of anyone else who used one before us. The first one we did, I, I didn't actually believe that it was capable of happening. I, I mean, I, I remember, I think I read it somewhere, like it might have been in Mixmag or something like that. I read the change in the licensing laws meant you could actually license temporary spaces. And it wasn't until we actually did it and the council didn't object and the police didn't object that I thought, wow, this is going to really change the game for us. I mean, do you think from that point on it kind of did shift what you were about or did that you know did that have a noticeable discernible knock-on effect i mean it, it had i suppose it had two effects for us one it meant we weren't constantly on the run from the police and we weren't worried every time we put on a party that it was going to get shut down or we were going to get the equipment seized or we were going to get everything stopped and effectively lose a lot of money as well because we'd obviously hired everything in and booked all the djs so it, it caused that to sort of dissipate i suppose and we weren't so concerned about those those threats but it also meant then everybody else had license to put on similar parties to the ones we were doing. So it took, I suppose, that uniqueness that our parties had away to a certain extent because eventually everybody realised you could get a temporary event notice. I think we probably had a good year or maybe a couple of years where people didn't really realise you could do that and people still thought we were putting on illegal parties and people still thought that we didn't have a licence. And yeah, it took a little while, but most promoters cottoned on after a while. <laughs> 
And I guess even though um, you were able to utilise the tens, you still had to contend with like last minute venue changes and that sort of thing. I mean, has that been a kind of like continued reality? Yeah. Over? Yeah. I mean, we just get used to it now. I think it was quite funny when we lost the venue for the first Eastern Electrics. Everyone was like, wow, what are you going to do? You've not got a venue. Like, how are you going to put the party on? And I was just like, well, it happens all the time to us. It's not like we'll find a venue. That's what we do. So yeah, it's just it just becomes a reality of the party really, and if you want to put those sorts of parties on, you just get on with it and deal with it. Yeah, sure. I guess this whole process was what kind of led to what was quite a low moment for the party when you had the incident with the cloakroom at the event in Hackney Wick. Maybe people outside of London don't know about what happened. You just explain what went down at that event. Yeah, I mean that also stemmed from another venue loss situation. Uh, originally, we were supposed to have that party at the Pleasure. Gardens, which unfortunately we weren't able to use, we'd we'd sort of put a deposit down, and we were we'd put the tickets on sale, and we were all set to do the event there. And so we had another last-minute venue change. We'd already sold a few thousand tickets, so we needed a fairly substantial venue, and we we found the space in Hackney Wick. And unfortunately, the the people who who ran that venue wanted to run the event themselves. I mean, they obviously had financial motivations to do that, but they wanted to run the bar operation, the cloakroom operation, the security, basically run everything, which traditionally we have always done ourselves. We always run our own bars. We always employ our own security. We always take care of the cloakroom. And it's something that over the years we've sort of built up a certain level of, of knowledge and expertise in. And we negotiated for quite a while and tried to get the the guys involved to change their mind but they were adamant that if we wanted to do the party there we had to do it on their terms and I look back on it now and I think well maybe we should have just pulled that party and not done it but at the time we'd sold we'd sold the tickets the event was pretty much sold out and we'd booked the DJs we'd committed to quite a big spend for that event and we would have lost quite a lot of money if we if we hadn't have done it so we went ahead Unfortunately, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong at that event went wrong. There was big queues outside uh, for people to get in that weren't managed very well. When people got in, there was queues at the bar. The cloakroom wasn't very well organised. The bar ran out of drinks and ran out of change and all the things that we'd spent years like making sure we didn't do basically happened at that party. And at the end, there was quite a few people who didn't get their coats back. Cloakroom tickets went missing, like coat rails got knocked down. People ended up trying to get their own jackets back. And it's our party. We have to accept responsibility for that, which we did after the event. And unfortunately, yeah, it was, it was probably as a promoter the worst like moment of my promoting career I mean would it be fair to say that after such a you know a low it perhaps made you reconsider like you know the continued existence of the party yeah I mean certainly after that we sort of took stock of what we were doing and said right do we want to carry on doing this like is it worth I suppose putting ourselves through that and both me and Geddes felt that we couldn't end the party on a low note like that there was no way we could just finish the party with that being its legacy I suppose and we sort of did everything we could to repair what got damaged I mean every single person who lost an item of clothing or who didn't get their coat back we we personally approached we gave them money and we gave them free tickets to the next event we did everything we could to repair that relationship and that money came out of our pockets and we didn't even take the revenue for the cloakroom or, or, or the bar or anything like that but we still paid 
everyone back in whatever way we could and we ended up not making any money from that party in the end just because we paid back so much money for people's coats which we can accept is fair enough but I suppose it was more the damage that it had done to our reputation and and it was it was really upsetting after putting on so many great parties to have something like that happen but in terms of finishing it then we did talk about it but there was no way that could have been like yeah the 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 legacy of that party it just wouldn't have been yeah I wouldn't have been able to let that happen yeah because you made it to the 10th anniversary earlier this year that's right is there plans to do more mullet over events are you kind of figuring it out at the moment or yeah I mean I think that will be the last club show doing an arena at the festival yeah certainly at the moment we've got no plans to do another club show I think 10 years in any business is a long time and 10 years doing something that is something that we love really essentially and something that that we do as a hobby and we do because we want to put on great parties and eventually it comes to a point where you're like well we've done pretty much every club in London we've done every warehouse in London we've done like lots of fields we've done lots of parties in Ibiza and Croatia and and we always said when we started that if we didn't feel we were adding something new or something interesting or something different to the club scene in London then really what are we doing it for and I think we certainly reached that point this year where we were like well how can we make this party different to what everybody else is doing and and I think now it's it's really hard in London to do that and yeah we didn't want to just put on parties just to like oh we'll do a Halloween party and a birthday party and a couple other parties and we'll make a few quid over the year and it's yeah that's not really what we're in it for we're in it to put on like amazing events and if we aren't doing that then there's no point doing it for yeah, us, I, I understand. think. So I guess the, the backdrop to this story is you work with Eastern Electrics. Could you kind of describe like the, the origins of the event for us? Yeah. So I suppose back six years ago, which would have been, if my maths is correct, 2008, uh, myself and Will Patterson, who also does the Fan Festival now, we wanted to put on an event in Shoreditch, which was a multi-genre sort of event that had house, techno, sort of more bass-led music. And we wanted to do quite a big event in Shoreditch over the August Bank holiday weekend. Again, the ongoing venue loss theme running through this conversation occurred and we lost that venue. And we managed to find the Great Suffolk Street Arches, which was the home of Eastern Electrics really for sort of uh, three or four years and yeah the the idea from the outset really was to put a festival on but we wanted to build a brand and build something rather than just go okay we're putting a big festival on and we wanted to have some sort of depth behind it and we also wanted to sort of build a fan base I suppose so we did the warehouse parties for three years and then we did the first festival in 2012. I mean, do you feel that there was perhaps a gap in the market for uh, an event of this size in London at the time? Certainly, yeah. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, there was the scene was a lot smaller when we first started doing Eastern Electrics, and I'm not sure whether you could have had a 10,000 capacity festival playing just house and techno, really, mm-hmm. at that time. But certainly when we launched the first event, the appetite was there, and I think almost like a, a new breed of younger clubbers had, had sort of come through and mixed with the, I suppose, older guard who'd been listening to that music for, for the last sort of 10 years, I suppose, meant there was a, a, quite a big market for that sort of event in London. 
And when it actually came to staging what represented a more like full festival offering, obviously the inevitable of a venue problems rose ahead. Did you have to sort of rethink the way that you were approaching as a result of this venue switch? Because you were down for Clapham Common initially, yeah. weren't you? And then went to sort of a more concrete space over yeah. in Greenwich. Like, did you have to tweak the way that you were approaching everything very much? Yeah, I mean, we basically had to fit what we were putting on the common onto that space, which meant we lost a lot of the production elements that we were going to put on the common because it's a concrete site. You can't physically fix certain things into the concrete. All the tents that we used were sort of clear span tents because we couldn't dig into the ground and put sort of proper marquees and, and perhaps more interesting structures in there. One of the biggest issues that we had was that also when we hired that site, we were supposed to hire it with everything set up unfortunately the landlord for that site went bankrupt before our event and he never built the site so we ended up actually building the site ourselves which for a year one festival was quite a tough ask so it was actually quite a stressful situation to actually bring that event together the least stressful thing was selling the tickets which isn't always the case but for that one the ticket sold out sort of four weeks in advance but yeah that the actual site was i suppose fraught with problems in terms of this year's event you're back to a single day offering were the things that you kind of learned from last year's event that you sort of applied to this year yeah, I think last year's event was too ambitious. We wanted to go for three days when in reality we probably could have put a one-day or a two-day event on that site and it would have worked a lot better. Which was um, Nebworth, for, Nebworth, for those that don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think in my head I maybe assumed that people would be really into the all-night concepts. I suppose for me, um, growing up, going to raves that went on till six in the morning, that was a format that I thought people would would really like. But I think today people are quite happy just to come in the daytime and go to an after party or go somewhere else after. And I think people aren't as concerned about being out all night. And obviously, the longer you put the event on for, the more your costs increase, policing costs increase, security costs increase, staffing costs increase. And yeah, the event we put on last year was very expensive. Yeah, um, see, I mean, was it just a case of like not quite getting enough people through the doors? Yeah, I mean, in terms of numbers, the Saturday was really well attended. We had nearly 15,000 people there on the Saturday. And then it was the Friday and really the Sunday where we lost the money. The Sunday, there was probably only about 7,000 people there. And most of those have been there all weekend and, and had sort of camped for the weekend. And yeah, that's where a lot of the money was lost because really, I suppose, in hindsight, we should have looked at it and thought, well, do people want to rave for three days solid? And if we'd have maybe just on the Friday and Saturday, it probably would have made financial sense. But the additional day with the cost of the acts on the Sunday and again, the cost of security, policing, infrastructure, etc., meant that, yeah, it just, just didn't become viable. So bearing in mind all the sort of stresses that are associated with putting on such events, like what's the moment for you where you kind of like look out or, you know, what's the, the sort of point in the events where you really think to yourself, okay, this is all worth it. You know, what do those moments usually look like? In, in 2012, that moment was... Uh 
me and Jamie Jones on the main stage, sun just setting over the city and over the sort of gas tanks down in uh, Greenwich. And at that point, yeah, you're thinking he, he was playing the last set of the day. Like everyone had, had a great time. The sun had shone. I think Britain won like five or six gold medals in the Olympics that day. Like, okay, see. Yeah, it was it was one of those moments where you look at my mum and dad were there as well. And yeah, that, that that's what makes it all worthwhile. And as if you didn't have enough on your plate, you also own three pubs. <laughs> <laughs> Are you someone who kind of subscribes to the um, long English tradition of the good old boozer? Where does this love come from for you? I mean, everybody loves a boozer, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually an accident the way I got into the pubs. I actually wanted to buy a nightclub. That was probably... Just after I'd started doing Mullet Over, really, in 2005, 2006, and one of my mates, Richard, me and him were looking at a venue in London. And obviously, to buy a nightclub in London is a fairly expensive process. But we, we managed to find somewhere. We'd put an offer in. It was all looking like it was going through. Solicitors were sort of getting ready to sign papers. And then the person with the venue pulled out. And we ended up not buying it. Whereabouts um, was it? I'm not going to tell no, you. Not specific. <laughs> <laughs> it was in East London okay, somewhere. Okay. <laughs> and after that, my friend went travelling, and I still wanted to get a venue. And I'd been looking around sort of East London for a while, and there was this place in Bethnal Green that was called the Pleasure Unit great name for a venue and I'd sort of looked at it a couple of times and I thought well maybe I could turn that into sort of live music stroke sort of DJ venue and yeah eventually I took the plunge and thought yeah why not let's buy it so what sort of makes a great pub in your mind a great pub obviously has to get you have to be able to get a good pint there got to have good food and I think increasingly well for me anyway music's an important element and I think the pub's all about socialising, so it's about the people who are in there and it's about meeting interesting people and different people and meeting characters, I suppose. Mm. I mean, what's the sort of biggest obstacle for you in running these venues? I mean, we talked at length about the, the problems you have with putting on club events. Like, what is it in pub, uh, sort of the world of pubs? The world of pubs. Staffing is always an issue, getting good staff and I hate it when you go into a pub and the bar staff don't want to talk to you or they ignore you or they don't serve you. And I think getting good staff is, is always difficult. I suppose with any business, cash flow is always a problem. We're always wanting to expand and do new things to the pubs and refurbish areas and, and do things. And, and the banks don't want to lend to pubs. They're not seen as a, a sexy business. So raising finances is quite often difficult. But it's not a bad business. I don't mind being sat at my bar and yeah, having a pint and having a chat with my mates. It's not a bad place to be. And just to finish up, I wanted to ask you about London in general, because obviously you've been involved in uh, nightlife in London for well, a long time now. Do you feel sort of hopeful for the future of London's nightlife? Well, I mean, we're here in 2014 and obviously there are many challenges associated with like putting on events and such like. I mean, do you look to the future in a sort of hopeful way? I think people will always want to go out and dance and party and so far people haven't been able to stop them and I think it'd be a very sad day if London didn't retain that and I think 
as long as you've got people who want to put parties on and who want to put events on and who want to go that extra mile to put decent things on, then, yeah, London's always going to have its own scene. And I think even if clubs do still close down, I think you'll always get people putting on parties. And I think that might happen even further outside of the centre and it might happen in Tottenham or it might happen even further out towards the south. But I think people are always going to want to go and party. So hopefully it's not going to go anywhere. I think when I, when I look back and think to when I first came to London in 96, there was a lot more things going on. But I think also there was a lot less things going on in a way as well. So there might have been a lot more club nights going on and a lot more, I suppose, parties going on. But then there was a lot less other sort of cultural things going on in London. And I think we've got more sort of mini festivals now. We've got more, I suppose, pop-up spaces to go to. And I think things just change. And you can always hark back and say, oh, it was better then and it was better in... Like, when I came, everyone was going, oh, it was loads better in 1988 and you should have been here in 89. And do you know what I mean? That's always going to be the case. And I think when when we look forward, we should just think, well, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be good. 